Hello and welcome to the September 2015 episode of the Harvard Medical Labcast. This podcast is brought to you by Harvard Medical School's Office of Communications in Boston. I'm David Cameron. And I'm Stephanie Duchin. And in this episode, Stephanie tells us about a disturbing new study that shows how the current formula for assessing a hospital's readmission rates may have some unintended consequences. And in today's conversation, David speaks with Dragana Rogulia about what fruit flies have to tell us about the science of sleep. Tell us a little bit more about this, David. Well, Dragana Rogulia is a professor of neurobiology here at the medical school, and she studies the genetics of sleep, and the animal model that she uses is the fruit fly, as you just mentioned. And she essentially has this gigantic sleep lab for flies. <laughs> she has these flies and she genetically manipulates them in all sorts of ways. And they literally have flies there that have insomnia. They have flies there that have trouble falling asleep, tr- flies that have trouble waking up. And what they're doing is looking for the genetic uh, components of all that and hoping to find clues into why you and or I might have these same problems. Who knew? Yeah, exactly. Who knew? It's it's pretty it's pretty interesting. A lot of our conversation um, happened actually in some of these rooms where she has some of these machines and we were walking around the lab. So at times it gets a little noisy and you'll hear some doors open and close and things like that. Uh, but, science uh, at work. Si- yeah, it actually it is science at work. So let's, uh, let's take a listen. This is a really important area. Yeah, yes. Have a oh, you've got your popcorn own machine popcorn. That's stuff. awesome. Yeah, so I don't know if I've ever seen one of these in a lab before. I've seen you know, lots yeah. of espresso machines. Yes, that, that we is... have a good coffee machine. Very yeah. important. I didn't actually offer you guys coffee, but... That's okay. That's I'm, I'm caffeinated, and now I'm okay, and this chocolateed. Okay. So when I oftentimes when I've spoken to people in this department, the Department mm-hmm. of Neurobio here, um, their particular areas of interest are often incredibly arcane mm-hmm. and very specific and just this, uh, unless you know a lot about molecular biology, you probably wouldn't even understand uh-huh. the problems that they're trying to solve. And yet, you're here you are and mm-hmm. using the same tools and everything, but you're, you're asking uh, questions that are, in a sense, very obvious, very plain, but using such a sophisticated tool to do. So I don't know. Can you talk a little bit about that? I like that. I like that. You know, I like uh, um, asking kind of really simple and plain questions, as you say, because we we can all understand them and we can intuit that these are important things. And I also think it's fun to study things that you can uh, relate to on a personal level, too. So we all know, you know, what uh, not getting enough sleep feels like, right? We all know that that horrible, crappy feeling that <laughs> follows the night of, <laughs> right? Like inadequate Some of sleep. Some at this very moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, I uh, hope not. I yeah. hope I'm entertaining you enough. No, no, not la- to no, feel no, like no, 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 no. Not right here. I mean, uh, <laughs> last night was uh, okay, a little okay. off for me. Well, so, so you see, it's something that affects us really a lot, right? And and you know that there are days when you just all you can think about is just wanting to crawl back into bed. Now, we don't know what that feeling is, really, where it comes from, um, but we've all experienced it, and I think it's something that can really drive you forward, propel you to, to look into things further, because 
you know, you, you know that this is something important. You know that there's a real basis, biological basis, you know, for, for what we or physiological basis for what we're studying. And anybody can understand What's the your, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean to throw case. this paper at you. What is uh, your own sleep My experience. pattern, I history like? Are bad. you a good sleeper? Oh, bad. bad sleeper. No, I'm okay. not a good sleeper. It okay. sucks. I mean, it's really, it's horrible, you know. It's just something that uh, my mom's side of the family um, is like that. They have trouble sleeping, and I'm the same way. So I, I can fall asleep, but then I just can't stay asleep. I just wake up, and I continue After, like, up. just a couple After hours? maybe, like, yeah, an hour and a half, two hours, I would say And are say you probably. then up for the... No, no, I go back to sleep, but I, I stay asleep, stay awake a little bit, and then I, you know, go back, sleep again. I think I go probably through a cycle of sleep, you know, non-ram-ram, ram, and then mm -hmm. um, I wake up, and then I go back to sleep. So, so what's it, you know, what's interesting is we can see this in humans, and we can see this in flies, that some people like me, or some flies like me, have trouble staying asleep. Other animals... Um, can stay asleep, as I said, once they fall asleep, right? And so what's exciting to us is that we can genetically really separate these, these mechanisms. And we know that, um, so in other words, some of us have problems with one process or the other, and we can find genes that affect either initiation of sleep or maintenance of sleep. And so this is important because first of all, you know, when we're intellectually curious and we wanna know mm -hmm. how, how you separate these. But second, um, they're really, a lot of us do have sleep problems and there's a lot of need for finding better sleep medications. Right. And the sleep medications that we have now, I'm not gonna say too much bad about it because they've helped me, you know, <laughs> they've helped me in the past. They've helped they're, me. <laughs> yes, they're, they're great, you know, but at the same time, there's really a lot of um, side effects that are associated with this uh, because you're um, affecting many general processes in the brain. So we don't have things that would really very specifically target um, uh, target sleep, let alone initiation of sleep versus maintenance of So sleep. is that sort so of a, a, a long-term, I mean, I know you're doing very basic fundamental mm -hmm. discovery here, yeah. but uh, do you sort of have this as sort of a, a vision of maybe your work one day being a apply to some more targeted therapies? Sure, I mean, I, I would love that. You know, I would say on a day-to-day -day basis, it's not something that um, really shapes our day-to-day -day experiments, but we're always keeping this, you know, in our minds as a long-term um, long solution. Because if you can combine uh, things that are exciting and fun and intellectually stimulating with something that can be actually useful in the long run and, and you know, help people, of course, we would, we would love that. So we do think about this. I mean, the fact is that that's, it's, there's a huge market for this and there are the solutions that we have right now yeah. are very unsophisticated. So you've heard about all the side effects that are associated with taking some of these medications and, you know, so on, because you're affecting a lot of the processes in the brain. Sure, they're kind of messy. Yeah, they're pretty drugs. messy. It's like we, we usually say here, it's like a sledgehammer you know, approach, you yeah. affect the whole brain. So it's just, it, it's weird stuff. Uh, but you know, at the same time, sleep is quite complicated. And so I don't, you know, I don't think it, there's gonna be like a really simple <laughs> solution coming soon to fixing mm -hmm. all of these problems. But, um, but in the long run, definitely. So our goal is to find, for instance, genes that act in smaller populations of cells or find smaller clusters, clusters of neurons that regulate sleep. And so if you could manipulate the function of those as opposed to something in the entire brain, then you could maybe achieve more specificity.
so this is we're now getting into the room where uh, we're looking at uh, different arousal states of the fly arousal threshold um, experiments so so come on in so this is um, one uh, other question that we're very interested in is understanding actually I would say uh, I would say that this is kind of the reason why I got into sleep research originally is thinking about um, awareness really what awareness is uh, what consciousness is what awareness is what does it mean what does it mean to really be alive and perceive the world around you uh, so there's this really big difference uh, between what goes on in your head when you're asleep and when you're awake so I thought that you know studying sleep and waking uh, could be a good way to to get to what perception is what it means to be aware of something so we thought that it would be really good to um, study um, arousal threshold during sleep. In other words, the fact arousal threshold. Arousal threshold. Okay. Meaning that um, what will arouse you from sleep, the stimulus that would arouse you when you're sleeping, needs to be stronger than a stimulus that would uh, elicit a response when you're awake. Okay? okay. So the threshold is higher, so the stimulus needs to be stronger to get over that threshold. Okay. So if I whisper something to you now you're going to be aware of that right if i do the same when you're um, sleeping you're not going to be aware of that unless i say your name in which case you may be more aware or hmm. or if it's your kid you know crying e even softly you know stimulus that's more mm -hmm. salient will somehow get through but but there's a general change in the way that your brain uh, perceives and processes information and decides what to do with it um and so we decided to uh to um, basically set up a system to look for animals that are uh, much easier or much harder to wake up from sleep than normal, meaning that their arousal threshold yep. is different. Okay, so, so they still are sleeping, but the depth of their sleep is different. Again, and, and that we hope will help us understand how, how that barrier during sleep is constructed in the brain. And, and what the genetic what the genes are, what the neurons are that are regulating this, and then okay. eventually understanding that barrier can help us understand how in general information gets to the brain to generate awareness. So uh, my postdoc, uh, Iris Titos Vivancos, she constructs, so when she came um, to my lab, we talked about this, and then she came up with the system that you see here, okay? Wow, okay. Yeah, to so automatically uh, wake flies up, and. Um, we can now look. Um, so just describe what this is. So this is uh, some. This is a refrigerator. This is here. the yeah the same incubator and that we have. We have these little uh, and we have this wells or tubes with how many flies are in each of these. So each of these little machines is thirty-two little uh, monitors. It's thirty-two flies. Okay. And so here you have. I mean, you have a lot. I mean, there's yeah. There's, there's like five, six hundred flies in there now. Okay. Um, and we can automatically produce different stimulation. Uh, so like what? Uh, we have a program uh, to produce vibrations of different intensity, either very gentle or um, very strong that, would, uh, that we can apply to flies during their sleep. Um, and then we can look for animals that are much more responsive, say for, to a gentle stimulation. So mm -hmm. we found um, it is found some mutants that are um, when you when you very gently uh, uh, 
shake them, for instance, normal flies are refractory to that, okay? Because of that elevated arousal threshold, they don't respond, right? Your brain is kind of um, guarding itself against mm -hmm. uh, these assaults, right, that happen during sleep. But she found animals that are much, 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 uh, much, much, much easier, excuse me, to wake up. And well, even did she manipulate gentle. them genetically, or did yes. she just, so, okay. so she, right, right, so she, what she does is, step outside she, yeah. So what she does is um, she actually manipulates different genes. So she um, kind of turns off or dials genes down one by one in the nervous system and then looks for animals that respond in a different way. Okay. So the beauty of that is that we can um, immediately, we immediately know what the gene is that we've manipulated because we're directly targeting different genes and there's a lot of ways that you can do that now. So it still just strikes me from conversations I've had with mm -hmm. uh, various people around here at the medical school that just the, the fundamental question of why we sleep is still something of a black box. Yeah, I, I would say that's definitely, um, that's definitely the case. That's something that we don't, I, I would say, yeah, we, we really don't know. We have some ideas. Um, there are clearly uh, many processes that are affected if you don't sleep. So, so and if you don't sleep, you die eventually. I mean, eventually, yes. yes. So, so that's that's the idea. Although the yeah. kind of long-term deprivation experiments are a little bit trickier than okay. you would think, but but yes, there there is that. Uh, uh, it just it, it does seem idea. sort of funny. I mean, we know why we eat. Yeah, exactly. We know why so, we yes. breathe, and, and I would say so that's definitely true for all uh, the basic. Uh, animal behaviors from all the basic behaviors this is definitely the most mysterious one it's really not why clear. is that um, why is it that uh, that, that it's, it's the most mysterious yeah well it's most mysterious because we don't know what it's doing but I think that the answer is not gonna be um, well because the answer is not something that's obvious but I think that, that there's not gonna be a really simple answer to why we need to sleep so many things have been proposed you know they're regulating um, for instance immune system or um, your body temperature or metabolism. Now there's this idea that you're clearing some toxins uh, from the brain, that the sort of space uh, between cells in the brain is changing oh, really? in mammals okay. between waking and sleep. And you're kind of like flushing out uh -huh. toxins. It's almost like drain pipes, you know, changing size or shape okay. uh, during sleep. So there's that idea. But I think that um, it's not going to be just one thing. Um, I would say that you probably, so, so what is clear that we can see in flies that don't, um, that don't sleep well, they do die, they have, they tend to have decreased lifespan and it's easier, much easier to do these kind of longevity studies in flies, right? We don't know really where the, you know, lethality is coming from. Is it that your brain kind of uh, is messed up? Is it your heart, you know, is that your heart explodes? <laughs> Not literally, but you know, yeah. <laughs> is it something in, in your circulatory system, whatever. So we could, we could maybe in the fly, because we have all these tools to affect functions of different genes in different parts of the body, we can do some manipulations that uh, would help us kind of pinpoint where, you know, changes are happening when you're sleep deprived. But like I said, I think that, um, that the answer to that is not going to be really a simple one. This is why we need to sleep. What I like to think about is how do we, not just how do we get to sleep, uh, why do we sleep, how do we get to sleep, but how do we get to be awake really because it seems to me that a lot of the I mean we think of sort of wakefulness as the kind of primary state that the, and default, then state. the default state yeah. and then you you know go into sleep but if you think about 
you know, way, way back in evolution and more primitive organisms, are they more similar to a sleep state or are they more similar to a state that where, where you're awake and you have this awareness and these am amazing mental processes? Maybe they're more similar to sleep and then you had to kind of develop this awareness and consciousness and arousal, you know? So I think I've never it's thought <laughs> of that. That is really interesting. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's really interesting to think how, how do we get to experience thing, things around us actually in a way that, that we do when we're awake, you know, to process things. I mean, obviously that's something that um, requires a lot of resources. So I think we're kind of lucky, right? Because you're like, oh, I get to be in this state that allows me to interact with the world. So we're thinking about it that way too. And, and again, I think these experiments that we're doing with um, setting arousal, uh, threshold, how that changes between wakefulness and sleep will hopefully get to um, get us closer to understanding. Okay. Well, thank you. This was great. Thanks. Thank you so much, Dragana. Thank you, guys. And now for this month's abstract. One of the ways Medicare tries to encourage hospitals to improve quality is to penalize hospitals with high rates of patient readmissions. Medicare's standard formula adjusts only for patient age, sex, and certain diagnoses. Using that formula, the worst-performing hospitals had 4.4% more readmissions than the best-performing hospitals. A new study from Harvard Medical School's Department of Healthcare Policy found that the current formula leaves out key social and clinical factors that explain nearly half of the difference in readmission rates and suggests that hospitals that serve disadvantaged communities are being unfairly punished. In other words, a program designed to penalize hospitals for poor quality of care ends up penalizing them for treating sicker patients. The researchers developed a set of 29 patient characteristics such as self-reported health, functional status, race and ethnicity, income, and education. When they applied the more comprehensive formula, the difference in readmission rates shrank from 4.4 to 2.3%. Why does it matter? Last year, Medicare levied readmission penalties of $428 million across 2,600 hospitals, most of which serve disadvantaged patient populations. The researchers emphasized that it's possible to reduce readmissions without exacerbating health disparities. The standard formula could be adjusted, or each hospital could be incentivized to improve over its own baseline. This podcast is a production of Harvard Medical School's Office of Communications. Thank you for listening, and thank you to our producer, Rick Grolo. To learn more about the research discussed in this episode or let us know what you think, visit hms.harvard.edu slash podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at HarvardMed, or like us on Facebook. And now for those of you who have actually listened all the way to the end here, we are going to treat you to a really horrible, horrible science joke. So you ready, here Stephanie? We go. Okay, here we go. So, Stephanie. Yes, David. Ever heard of Pavlov? Mm, I'm not sure, but I think it rings a bell. Oh, oh God. Yeah, I know. Groans, that groans. Hurt. That hurt. Okay, bye. <laughs>